Good morning and welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the lead minister here at GCC, and I'm really grateful that you've decided to come out and worship with us. Today, we continue our friendship series. Friendship, oh, it's so important. Friendship is one of those great relationships that God has created us to enjoy. Friendships are very, very important, and I hope that over the course of this series, you've recognized that you need to seek to make friends with those who have a shared mission, just like Joshua and Caleb had that shared mission. And I hope that you've resolved to be a really good friend by choosing and choosing your friends carefully. I hope that we can learn a lot from Job's friends, how they came and sat and listened for a time, but then they kept talking. I hope that you are willing to just sit there with your friend and suffer well together. I also hope that you will see that the greatest aspect of love that could ever be demonstrated is the willingness to lay down your life for your friend. And I hope that you love your friends so much that you're willing to go all the way for them. And of course, I hope that as the story of Jonathan and David taught us last week, that loyalty is something you value so, so highly. Loyalty is very, very important. But what happens even when you're loyal, even when you're willing to lay down your life for your friend, even when you are willing to just sit there and cry with them, and even when you have the shared mission, and yet things don't go well? What happens when you get into a disagreement? What happens in the world today when we find ourselves at odds with someone that is our friend? Well, oftentimes we dissolve that friendship. Block them on Facebook. Not even Facebook friends with them anymore. Unfriend. We've got such a cavalier attitude towards friendship that if we don't like what somebody says, we can just push a button and now we're not even friends with them anymore. Of course, that's not what real friendship is. Key to lasting friendship is speaking and receiving the truth in love. Look, there's going to come a day where you do not get along even with your best friend. There's going to come a day where you see something differently and you've got to make a choice. What are you going to do? In our world, we hear an awful lot about love, but the world doesn't understand love. We know that the biblical aspect of love is to lay down our lives for our friends. We understand that the most loving thing we can do is seek to snatch someone from the fire. And yet we live in a world where people think that love is the same as being nice. Love is not the same thing as being nice. And so if you want to endure, if you want your friendship to last, you both have to speak the truth in love and receive the truth in love. And that can be tough. That can be tough because in our world, we're taught that you don't love someone unless you agree with someone. You have to agree with them. Now, you might start out just being an advocate or somebody who's an ally, but it will grow to the point where you have to full-on agree. Otherwise, you just don't love people. We see it all the time. Too often, Christians are willing to sacrifice truth on the altar of kindness. Do not allow yourself to be one who will sacrifice truth on the altar of nice. Kindness and nice, these are great things. But kindness and nice don't get people into the kingdom. Truth 
gets people into the kingdom. Now, we're told, we're told that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. That's exactly right. In fact, that's what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it tells us. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head. That is Christ. We want to grow mature, don't we? We want our fellowship of believers to develop and to grow in every respect into the mature body of Him who is the head. That is Christ, our Savior, our friend. And the key to that is speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. But sometimes truth is not easy to hear. Sometimes truth is not easy to share. But it is Speaking the truth in love, not if we just couch that true thing in really nice language. Not if we just wrap that true statement in niceness. No, no, no. We are told to present our case with respect and gentleness. We are. And we should sprinkle our conversation with salt. And we should present ourselves in a kind and nice way. But sometimes... Sharing the truth means they will not see you as kind. Sometimes sharing the truth means that the world will not reckon you as nice. Sometimes sharing the truth will put you at odds with people in this world. And if ever it comes to where speaking the truth puts you at odds with a friend, understand that speaking the truth in love is not just being kind and nice. It's having the right motivation to share that hard truth. And that motivation is love of God. I love God so much that I will share the truth with people. And I love other people so much that I will seek to share the truth with them. I don't want to lie to them. I don't want to tell them that something that is sinful is okay. I don't want to lie to the world and say that it is all right that we have an entire month devoted to the celebration of sinful pride. That's not okay. I'm not going to lie to the world and say, yeah, well, it's, it's okay if we endorse these things that are against the Bible. No. I would rather speak the truth in love, in love for the person, in love for God, and share the truth with them. Now, what that means is I have to be willing to submit the outcome, because if I share the truth in love, I don't know what the outcome may be. You recognize, of course, that Jesus, the greatest preacher of all time, preached marvelous sermons and then people left. That Jesus, who is God in the flesh, taught some of the most remarkable teachings that any human ear has ever heard, and yet some people thought it was too hard and they hightailed it out of there. When we speak the truth, we do not control the outcome, but what we do is in love, allow a good outcome to happen. But we have to be willing to submit that outcome. 
Friends know what it is to submit the outcome. Friends know what it is to submit the outcome, even when they speak truth. Now, you guys know my best friend is Clay O'Dell. We really got connected as best friends when he got out of the Marine Corps. And when he got out of the Marine Corps, he moved home to be with his wife, to be with their, uh, their son. They'd uh, gotten married during the Corps. And finally, now, out of the Marine Corps, Clay looked me up and we started hanging out every Wednesday at Chick-fil-A. And I recognized something very, very quickly. This guy is just like I remembered. He was still like the big man on campus who could do everything well. I mean, he could be the lead in the play. He could be the all-American baseball player. He was the best student teacher, the best student preacher. He was the one that everybody wanted to hang out. This guy still had it all. But now, having four years in the core of being sharpened by the finest branch of our U.S. military into this man who's willing to go into embassies and secure the diplomats... Because that, that, was, that was part of his gig in, in the 0311. He was part of FAST, the Fleet Anti-Terrorism uh, S? Security. Security Team. That's what it is. I'll, I'll get it right someday all the way. Wow. What happens when you leave a world where you have trained for a very specific purpose? What happens when you leave a world where you have meritoriously raised, risen through the ranks and now are sergeant? And when you say move, your men move. And you understand the chain of command. And when your superior officers tell you to move, you move. And then you come back to the civilian world where, well, everything's full of disrespect and craziness. It's got to be tough. It's got to be tough. And in our connections there, I recognized, you know what? There's some stuff that Clay needs to mellow out on a little bit. And, and you might know, and anybody who served in our military probably knows that when you leave that world and come back to the civilian world, yeah, there's an adjustment that needs to take place. I don't understand it, but I will seek to be understanding about it. And there was a few times where I had to, in love, submit the outcome of what I was about to say and say, Clay, some, some of this you just need to let go. You can't control everything around you. Some of this you just need to let go. And I had, I had to submit the outcome of that. You know, I don't want Clay to be upset with me, but you know what? No, it's fine. We just continued talking and we sought to suffer well together. In our relationship, sometimes I had to tell him a hard truth. Not that he was in the wrong, but that could help him embrace something even better. Well, Clay decided that he was going to pick up a master's degree in Christian apologetics. I endorse this move fully because I've, I've got a master's degree in Christian apologetics. Love it. And so we were talking one night, just uh, out the front porch, just talking about God stuff. And we somehow stumbled upon the conversation involving the impeccability of God. Now, the impeccability of Christ is the idea that Christ cannot sin, the sinlessness of Jesus. And what is it to say that Jesus did not sin? The Bible says over and over, he did not sin. But here's a question. Could Jesus have sinned? Was it even logically possible for Jesus to have sinned? And Clay and I, we had differing views on this subject. And as we were talking about it, we would continue to talk for months and months. And eventually, Clay got so in love with the idea that he wrote his master's thesis on the impeccability of Christ. And you could read his huge paper on, oh, yeah, nope, Jesus couldn't have sinned. And it's awesome. And we started to see eye to eye on those same things. And I thought, man, it's so good to have a friend that you can talk about these deep things 
that you can share true things, that you can submit the outcome because you know you've got that shared mission. You know you'll suffer well together. You know he would die for you. You know that the loyalty is there. It changes everything. And that's what leads us today to our final group of friends, the mighty Paul and Barnabas. You guys know all about Paul and Barnabas, probably. Paul is the 13th apostle. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is a writer of 13 New Testament books. Paul is one of the greatest Christian missionaries who ever lived. Paul is a firebrand. Paul is a hard charger. Paul is a man who will get the job done. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, it tells us that there was a man named Joseph, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a big field he had, and he came and, and he brought all the proceeds to the apostles so that they could distribute it to those who had need. Barnabas was a man of encouragement. Barnabas is described as a man who is full of the Holy Spirit, and Barnabas is so well respected among the leadership of the early church that he is sent on very particular tasks to go share the gospel or take news or deliver a message. He is one of the most trusted believers. A Levite, he's of this priestly kind of tribe, and he understood what it is to be in the service of God. And together, these two formed one of the best New Testament friendships in all of the Bible. And we understand that these two worked together so powerfully in their ministry that in the scriptures, these two men are so equally yoked that eight times in scripture... The Bible refers to Barnabas first. It'll say Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul. Paul and Saul, same guy. You guys remember the story. And eight different times when it's talking about this team, this friendship, Barnabas is listed first. Now, every time it mentions Barnabas first, the Bible does, it's because Barnabas has a higher level of influence with the people to whom they are speaking. And 11 times in Scripture, it's Paul and Barnabas. And that's because in these contexts, Paul has a higher level of influence with the people to whom they're speaking. And so they would both defer to the other out of loyalty, love, and friendship to get the job done. Now, I want you to listen to what the book of Acts in uh, chapter 9 tells us about Barnabas. Now, normally, if I tell you, I want you to listen to what the book of Acts tells us um, in chapter 9, you would automatically think I'm talking about Paul. And I will, because in Acts chapter 9, that's where the apostle Paul really gets converted. He's known as Saul at the time, as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was very, very anti-church. He hated the church. In fact, he was the one who held legal responsibility for the martyrdom of the very first Christian killed for his faith, Stephen. Saul was there and he held the cloaks of those who stoned him to death. Saul was so against the church that he went to the high priest in Jerusalem and he got letters so that he could go to different towns, and this time he was on the way to Damascus, to arrest more Christians. That's what he was doing. And while he was on his way to Damascus, he was blinded by a dazzling and brilliant light from heaven. And as he fell to the ground and looked up, unable to see, he said, 
what, what, what is going on? And he heard a voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard to kick against the goads. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now get up, and I will show you what you must do. And Jesus told him to go to Damascus, and he told him to go into the faith. <coughs> Excuse me. And so Paul, or Saul at the time, becomes a Christian, having had a legitimate personal encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. But this guy, he was so anti-church and anti-Christ that people didn't believe his conversion was real. So after he's converted, this is what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so it was that Barnabas, this great encourager, was the one who bridged the gap between Saul of Tarsus and the apostles in Jerusalem. They weren't willing to receive him because they knew that he was a guy who was ready to kill them. But Barnabas said, no, 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 this guy, he's come around. He's on our side now. He preaches fearlessly in the name of Jesus. You've got to give him a chance. And the apostles did give him a chance. And it was a good thing that they did too. Because they gave him a chance and they recognized that he was a man of great power. Well, if you flip over to Acts chapter 11, you see, starting in verse 19, the Bible tells us, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, remember, Saul killed Stephen, Saul smashed the church, and the church dispersed and had to run away and go different places. Those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God, and he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 20, verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Way back in the beginning of the book of Acts, before Jesus ascended to heaven, Jesus said to his believers, you're going to be my disciples. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my guys. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. He explains the pattern of gospel expansion. <coughs> and so it is that they all start in Jerusalem. And things are going really, really well. But then Saul shows up. And Saul kills Stephen. And he breathes out murderous threats against the church. And it's his persecution that starts to scatter, the Bible says, all the believers but the apostles. 
and they scatter. It's because of what Saul did in his BC days that the gospel of Jesus expanded the way it did. And because the Jews in Jerusalem, led by the Apostle Peter and the elder James, recognized, oh, even the Gentiles are becoming Christians. They send their number one man of encouragement, Barnabas, to Antioch. They, they send them all the way over there and say, go investigate. Go see what's going on. And he sees and he encourages and it is all good. And then he goes to Tarsus to get Saul, that great persecutor of the church, whom now he had introduced to the rest of the apostles, and together they worked. And the very first person ever called a Christian was called a Christian in the town of Antioch, where Barnabas and Saul served as elders. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us at the beginning of Acts chapter 13. Verse 1 of chapter 13 says, In the church of Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These were the five elders of the church. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And they started their first missionary journey. Barnabas and Saul. Now, in Acts chapter 13, that's where Paul, Saul, switches his name to Paul. Because even the Holy Spirit called these two guys Barnabas and Saul. But now that they're going on a specific missionary journey to the Gentiles, it shifts. And from now on, most of the time, it will be Paul and Barnabas. And they take a group with them because they need some support. They take a guy named John Mark with them. They take some other believers with them. They have to have an entourage so that they can go together, both for safety's sake and to just make sure that all the provisions are there. And they go to the island of Paphos. And on Paphos, they meet a sorcerer called Elemis. The proconsul of Paphos was a man named Sergius Paulus, and he said, I want to hear about the Lord because I've got some guys that are telling me things. And one of the guys telling them things was this Jewish sorcerer named Elemis. Well, Paul, he had some true things to say to this guy, and he spoke the truth in love because he loves God so much, he's going to speak the truth. He loves Elemis, the sorcerer, so much, he's going to speak the truth to him. But it wasn't exactly kind or nice. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says um, to this guy. He says to him in verse 10, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time and unable to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Pretty good opening salvo to your missionary journey, I'd say. Miraculous power, get a great Roman ruler to come to the Lord. Oh, this is good, good start. And then we get to verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companion sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John left them. Paul and Barnabas, this awesome missionary team, have been sent out by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel to Sergius Paulus, to Elemis, and to everybody on the island of Paphos. Miraculous signs are done, awesome preaching ensues, and then they start going, and the cousin of Barnabas, 
a guy named John Mark says, I'm out of here. I can't handle it, guys. I'm going back to Jerusalem. And he leaves. He leaves just as things are getting good. After he leaves, Paul and Barnabas, they move on and finish their first missionary journey. They preach to the Jews. The Jews don't like to hear it, so they shake their dust at them and they take the message to the Gentiles. They go and they heal people who've been crippled from birth. And some of the people think that they are the false gods Zeus and Hermes. Some of the people think that Paul and Barnabas are so awesome that they're gods in the flesh. And they think that Paul is Hermes because he does all the talking. And they think that Barnabas is Zeus because he's powerful sitting back and watching. And they say, no, 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 we're not gods. We're just guys like you. But you should fall in love with the one true God. And they share the message. They start churches. They establish elders. All kinds of things are great. And then they go back to their home base in Antioch. Now they're back to Antioch in, in Syria. And they continue to do ministry there for a long time. But then Acts 15 happens. And Acts 15 has some crazy stuff going on. Acts 15, starting in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about the question. The church sent them on their way, and they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they saw and they told how the Gentiles had converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. And when they got to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Some of the believers belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up, however, and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. You ever met somebody who tries to add a little bit of stuff to the Jesus? They're like, yeah, yeah, I know that you like Jesus, and that's good. But what you really need is this stuff plus Jesus. That is no good. Anybody who tries to add something to Jesus just has it wrong. So Paul and Barnabas, this awesome missionary team doing great work, they're preaching, and all of a sudden, these guys come down and say, hey, everybody who's a Christian has to become a Jew before they become a Christian. You got to get circumcised. You got to follow all the rules of Moses. And this sounds totally dumb to us at first, but it's not totally dumb to them. Listen why. Jesus was a Jew. All the first Christians were Jews. Every Christian that existed until we get many, many chapters into the book of Acts are all Jews. They were all Jews first. So, of course, you might think, well, this is the process. But that's not the truth. So Paul and Barnabas, they start fighting and debating and disputing these guys. And they say, no, 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 no. Don't tell these Greek, don't tell these Gentile brothers of ours that they have to first become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You can go straight to Jesus. Well, controversy erupted. And so they said, look, we got to hear from some leadership on this. And so they send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. And when Barnabas and Paul get to Jerusalem, they start talking. And even while they're talking, some of the Pharisees say, yep, you got to be circumcised. Well, this does not abide well with Paul or with Barnabas or with the leaders of the church. And so James, who's risen to eldership, and Peter, who's been an apostle for a long time now, they say, here's what we're going to do. 
You do not need to become a Jew before you become a Christian. That is not the case. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to write a letter, and we're going to ask you guys, Barnabas and Paul, to take it and share it with everybody. And this is what the letter said, starting in verse 23. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And so here's the letter. You don't have to become a Jew first, but in order to get along with your Jewish friends, could you please... Just not indulge in sexual immorality, not eat meat from strangled animals, not eat food sacrificed to idols or blood. And verse 30 says, So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. And after spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with a blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them in Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. They stayed in Antioch. That was where they were elders, man. That was their home congregation. And it was while they were in Antioch that Peter himself decides to make a trip up from Jerusalem to Antioch. And when he gets there, it seems like things are going to be great. After all, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, and now the apostle to the Jews, Peter, they're going to be together, along with the son of encouragement, Barnabas. It's going to be awesome. But when Peter gets there, it doesn't go so awesome. You know what happens instead? Peter starts acting like he can't even hang out with these Gentile Christians. Some time goes by, and Peter starts acting like those he'd just written a letter against. He starts only hanging out with the Jews and not with the Gentiles. He starts making it seem like if you're going to be a real Christian, you've got to follow the law of the Old Testament. This is not the case. And it's right after Acts chapter 15, verse 35. Verse 36 says, sometime later. That can be a really long time. It was during this interim that Peter came up to visit. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul wrote about what happened when Peter came up to visit. Let me read to you Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. This is Paul writing, of course. James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised. All they asked is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men had, came from, had come from James and had used, uh, that he had used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, they began to draw back 
And Peter separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not like sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by our faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul had to call out Peter to his face. Because even though Peter, a man full of the Holy Spirit, even though Peter, an apostle, he was still a man. And he still sinned. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is present and speak the truth to your friend. Paul had to do it. He had to do it because by shrinking away from the Gentiles, he was embracing hypocrisy that led other brothers astray, even Barnabas. Barnabas, Paul's best friend, the guy who introduced Paul to the apostles, was now like, ah, I can't even hang out with the Gentiles right now. And so Paul had to call him to his face, call him out to his face. And you know what? Because Paul had the boldness to speak the truth in love, and because Peter and Barnabas had the humility to receive truth in love, they were reconciled. Peter admits he's in the wrong. Barnabas admits he's in the wrong. They're like, man, I can't believe we did that. I'm so sorry. And they re-extend the hand of fellowship even to the Gentile Christians. And it's all good. And then we have Acts 15, verse 36. So all of this has happened. A big disagreement. They've gotten along. They're okay. Things are happening. And in Acts, 30, or in Acts uh, 15, verses 35, it tells us exactly what we just read. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia and strengthening the churches. And in Acts 16, he meets Timothy, who joins the team. Paul says, let's go back and visit all the churches. Barnabas says, great, let's bring John Mark with us. Paul says, no, no, we're not bringing John Mark with us. Why not? asks Barnabas. Because he left and didn't even finish that first journey with us. You think he's going to stick around for this one? Barnabas says, yeah, we've got to give him a chance. I can imagine Paul may have said, you're only saying that because it's your cousin, Barney. Come on. He flaked out. He got scared. He ran home. He's not trustworthy. I can't trust him. I need men I can trust. It's you and me. 
filled with the Spirit. Let's take Silas. Let's go. But Barnabas says, no. We can't give up on John Mark. We can't give up on him. And I do trust him. And they enter into such a sharp dispute that they parted company. The same phrase, sharp dispute, that's used of Paul and Barnabas about the man John Mark is the same phrase that's used of Paul and Barnabas against the circumcision party group that said Christians had to become Jews first. That's how heated this disagreement got. They disagreed with each other. Barney and Paul, Paul and Barney, best friends, they broke up as a missionary team over a personnel decision. But they both submitted the outcome. Paul said, Barnabas, I'm going to tell you the truth in love, brother. I don't trust him, and I can't have him with me. I need men I can trust, and that's how it's going to be. And Barnabas said, Paul, i got to tell you some truth, brother. We owe him another chance, and I know he can do it, and I'm taking him with me, and that's how it's got to be. And they both presented the truth to one another. But it wasn't truth over a doctrinal issue. It was truth over who they wanted to join them. And they broke up as a missionary team. Barnabas went with John Mark to Cyprus. They hung out with Peter and did a lot of good stuff. Paul went with Silas, linked up with Timothy, and went on to do a lot of good stuff. We might think, wow, it's so sad that these two guys broke up as friends. They didn't break up as friends. They didn't break up as friends. They stopped doing a particular ministry together and they both went and did ministry elsewhere, doubling the work and the efforts of the Holy Spirit, expanding the gospel and changing the world. But they had a disagreement. They both spoke the truth in love, but recognize that this is not an objective truth about doctrine. This is not, you shouldn't add anything to Jesus. This is not the Trinity. This is not the resurrection. This is not the reality of Scripture. This is, we should take this guy with us and work with him. Versus, we should not take this guy with us and work with him. Paul did not trust John Mark. And because of that, he did not go on the missionary journey with Barnabas. Barnabas did trust John Mark. And because he continued to encourage him, he brought him to the Apostle Peter. John Mark went on to grow up a little bit. The same snot-nosed kid who left the first missionary journey, he only got to Paphos. He saw miracles. He couldn't finish the first journey. He left homesick. He left too scared of the mission. He left ill-prepared. Well, he grew up a little bit. John Mark is his name, but most of us just know him as Mark. You know, the guy who wrote Mark. <laughs> the gospel. Yeah, the same guy that Paul said, I don't trust him. Barnabas invested in him. And he linked up with Peter, and he went on to write the gospel of Mark. Now you might think, wow. See, that turned out okay. Yeah, it did turn out okay. And the reason that it turned out okay is because Paul both had the boldness to speak the truth in love. I don't trust him, and so I'm not doing it. That doesn't mean that that's the only way anything could ever get done, but he was speaking the truth. He did not trust him, and he did not want him on that mission. But Barnabas spoke the truth. I do trust him. We've got to give him another chance. My whole name is encouragement, man. I'm the son of encouragement. We've got to encourage this kid. He's got something. Paul said, he might have something, but he doesn't have it yet. 
and what I need is stuff now. Okay. But they were both also humble enough to receive the truth in love. Barnabas was humble enough to say, okay, I will go with John Mark, you go with Silas, and all the best to you. But Paul was also humble enough to receive the truth in love. They stopped being missionaries together because of Mark. And yet, listen to what Paul and some of the other New Testament writers say about Mark later in the Bible. Paul says in Philemon chapter 1, verse 23, Mark, my fellow co-worker. Paul has reconciled with Mark, and now they're fellow co-workers. Peter, the apostle, says, uh, everybody sends you their greetings, and so does my son Mark. In fact, Mark wrote the gospel Mark primarily based on Peter's sermons. And if you read Acts chapter 10, the sermon that Peter delivers to Cornelius, it's pretty much an exact outline of the gospel of Mark. Awesome. And then Paul said to Timothy, the guy that Paul poured into, the one that Paul chose over Mark, and that, that turned out okay, because Timothy had two books written to him in the Bible. Mark went on to go write a gospel. It turned out, and this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.11, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Mark is helpful to you in your ministry? You didn't even want him in your ministry. Mark is your fellow worker? You didn't even want to work next to him, Paul. That's right. Paul had a very particular hard-charging approach, and he didn't have time to train someone up who wasn't ready to go. He had all the time in the world to train someone up who was ready to go. Timothy needed a lot of training, but Timothy was ready to go, and he was not going to give up. John Mark needed some encouraging. He needed the son of encouragement to help him. And so even though these two great pillars broke up as missionary teammates, they never broke up as friends because they had the boldness to speak the truth in love. Once, Paul had to speak the truth in love to Peter and Barnabas on a doctrinal issue, and Peter and Barnabas had to have the humility to receive that truth in love. Once, Paul and Barnabas spoke the truth in love to each other about a personnel matter, and they had to submit the outcome. I don't know what's going to come out of this, but I'm not taking him with me. I don't know what's going to come out of this, but I'm going with him, even if that means we're not going together. And they both submitted the outcome. And what did the Holy Spirit do? He changed the world for the better. Gospel of Mark, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, missionary journeys, the whole New Testament that we've grown to love. So I want you to understand that key to lasting friendship, even in the face of disagreement, is speaking and accepting, receiving the truth in love. So here's what I would love for you to do this week to get a handle on this. I'd love for you to read the entire chapter of Acts 15, of Galatians 2, and of Ephesians 4. Because if you read these entire chapters, you will be blessed by hearing about the friendship, hearing about how Paul had to call out Peter and Barnabas, and hearing about how we can grow to become mature. As you're reading Ephesians 4, underline verse 15 and memorize it. Speaking the truth in love, we will become in every respect, grow to become in every respect, uh, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And then I want you to pray. And how I want you to pray is very specifically for the boldness to speak the truth and love to your friends. Your friends might need to hear the truth. It might need to be about doctrine. It might need to be about personnel. It might need to be about something that is not 
The same level as do we accept Scripture or not, but it might be something. It might be a sin issue. It might be something. I want you to pray for the boldness to speak to your friends in love. Speak that truth in love. And then, likewise, I want you to pray for the humility to receive the truth in love from your friends. Because what your friends tell you as the truth might just be the things that change your life. It might be a conversation that you have on the back porch. It might be a sermon that you preach. It might be a time at men's encounter. But when you get to hear your friend speak the truth to you and you receive that truth in love, everything changes. Would you stand with me as we pray?